Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Why was David called a man after God's own heart? And where is that in scripture? Did, did we go over that? Did we read that part as we went through the book of Samuel? Well, we, we read one little section, and that is in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And this is where he is, uh, Samuel is speaking to Saul, who was king at the time. We've not met the character of David yet in the story of the book of Samuel. And so in chapter 13, uh, Saul has acted rashly. And Samuel says in verse 13, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. So at this point, we don't know that he's talking about David. I mean, most of us that grew up in church, kind of familiar with the Bible, you know, we, we realize he, he's talking about David. But if you'd never, if you didn't know about the Bible, if you didn't know any of these characters, you're hearing the story for the first time, you wouldn't know about David. You wouldn't even know that he existed. You wouldn't know what was going to happen. And you haven't met him really as a character. And so with Samuel informing Saul, someone else has been chosen, a person after God's own heart. And we will go and look in chapter 16 that follows this and see that uh, Samuel doesn't even realize that it's David. In fact, when he sees David's oldest brother, he thinks, well, it must be him because he's big and strong. Again, he's looking with his eyes and not, not with his heart. And so uh, this stands to reason then here in chapter 13, obviously Samuel didn't know it was David either. David had no idea. David was off shepherding somewhere. And so no one except God alone knew who the man was going to be. But what Samuel did know is that God knew. What Samuel did know is that Saul was done because of his uh, just con continued fear, his continued fearing everything but the Lord, his acting rashly, his uh, doing unrighteous things unrepentantly. Uh, Samuel knew Saul was done. And what he also knew was that the Lord would choose someone else to be in his place. And what Samuel knew is that the person who would endure, the person whose reign would last, would be somebody whose heart was very much like God's. And the only way to have a heart very much like God's is to pursue the heart of God, is to chase God, is to seek God, is to hunt him down and find him. And the only way you can do that is sort of to, to, to think like him, you know, to, to read his word and to know 
where's he going to be? How am I going to find him? What am I going to have to do in order to be able to, to, to meet up and have connection with God? So somebody after God's own heart. So as, as far as I know, uh, this is the only time that phrase is used here in uh, the book of Samuel. And I don't know that it's used uh, directly ever with David. And so what we have uh, in the book of Acts, so if you want to turn over to Acts chapter 13, And so here we're looking at Acts chapter 13. This is Paul is giving a sermon in uh, Antioch of Pisidia. And so he's preaching this sermon and he gets down to verse 21. It says, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. And so here he's uh, quoting sort of the thoughts of, of God, sort of uh, communicating what the thoughts of, of God were. And if you look at these footnotes, you'll see that they're referencing 1 Samuel 13, 20, uh, 13 and 14, uh, which we just read, and also uh, this uh, psalm that's associated with it. So what Paul is talking about here in Acts 13, 22 is he's putting that together for us. He's putting those two things together that when Samuel says that in 13, 22, he's clearly talking about David. Of course, we know that. But um, so even though the book of Samuel doesn't ever say it itself here in, in 13, uh, Acts chapter 13, Paul in the sermon puts it together. The man after God's own heart, that's David. Those go together. And we've just always known David by this term. This is how Paul describes him here in this sermon, which of course the sermon is all about going through the story of God to getting to Jesus so that he can preach Jesus to the people here in Antioch. And so it's a very important point that Jesus comes from the line of David because David was a man after God's own heart. So even though David did unrighteous things, did some really evil things, uh, he repented and he was still uh, favored by God and uh, was forgiven by God. And so that just reiterates these themes that we've had since Genesis, that people are made in the image of God. And so they're capable of great good. But our human nature is to uh, be survivalists and be sort of protecting ourselves and be selfish and self-focused. And because of that, we, we tend to do evil things and self-serving things. And we tend to do things for, for pleasure rather than uh, because they are good. And so we're capable of great evil. So we're both capable of great good and we're both capable of great evil. And uh, we see that in David. But just like we learned in Genesis, God gives us forgiveness. And that's the only way really that sins can be removed is through the forgiveness of that comes from the Lord, the forgiveness that comes from God, because otherwise the wages of sin is death. That's the only way to stop sin from happening is to just remove people from the earth. So, uh, so here's David. He's not perfect, but he's a man after God's own heart. And so even when he commits heinous evil acts, still his heart will return to the Lord and he'll find forgiveness and he'll repent. And he continues to suffer the consequences. And Israel continues to suffer the consequences of David's sin for a long time. The Lord tells him, you know, the sword will never swerve from your house. And so 
the rest of the book of Kings and uh, Chronicles is a lot of the same information. Just a lot of uh, politics and fighting and war and uh, this the house of Israel, um, Israel and, and Judah fighting against each other. And um, a, lot, a lot of sad consequences coming from one man's sins. Even so, he was forgiven. And so that's where we sort of get this phrase, man after God's own heart. And so that moves us now into 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And so this is the text for tonight. 1 Chronicles 28. And so what we looked at last time was 1 Kings chapter 2, which actually is probably, which was actually probably the end of the book of Samuel. So the book of Samuel, again, was all one continuous story. We have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel because they would have been broken up on two separate scrolls. And many of these scrolls have come down through copiers and, uh, you know, like people copying it by hand and these kinds of things. And many of the oldest manuscripts have only been discovered recently. And so that's why sometimes newer translations uh, may have a little bit different text than maybe the King James that you're used to or something like that, because so much discovery has been done in the last 50 or 100 years that we can really get back to some of these original texts. And most of it's small stuff and um little typos and misspellings and things that are completely inconsequential to the, to the basic tenets of the faith. But if you ever see discrepancies between a newer translation and an older translation, one question you can ask is, is this because we have older manuscripts that are, um, that are better than maybe what was around at the, at the time of this other version? So we have lots of um, old manuscripts that are coming to us and generally they will come to us in pieces and they will come to us in little bits of pieces. And so, um, even when King James was developed, the, the older manuscripts that we had, a lot of them were were, were pieces that had uh, barely survived. Uh, the scripture was uh, disseminated on a papyrus codex. So we've talked about this before, but just very quickly. So a scroll was one long piece of, you know, like lambskin or something like that. And it would be rolled up. They were very expensive. They were very big. They were very hard to carry around. And so the codex was something for the common man. It was basically sheets of paper bound together um, and they were either sort of loose leaf or they would have something tied through the side and it would be more like a book, like what we're familiar with today as a book. At the time of the New Testament writing, about 75% or so of writing at that time was still on scrolls. Only about 15 or 25% was on codex. But the New Testament was 75 to 85% on codex and only about 20 to 25% disseminated on scrolls. That's because codex you could keep in your pocket. You could copy page by page. You could uh, slip in and out in places where it would be seen as contraband or illegal or something like that. And so it was great for the early church to really adapt to this brand new technology for the spreading of the gospel message. The downside of that is it's very hard to get papyrus to stick around for 2000 years. And so even our oldest manuscript pieces that we have left, you know, none of them are what we would call originals, but a lot of them, we have some very old ones. We have some very old ones from the, the second, early second century. So remember that's the one hundreds. So really uh, not long after, um, well, not long after the events, but certainly not long after they were written. I mean, if you consider the Gospel of John may have been written in his old age, possibly the late first century, possibly compiled in the early second century. 
um, then uh, some some of the manuscripts that we have of John are from the second century, I believe. So we have some really old manuscripts and same goes for the Old Testament. We have some, some very old things, the stuff that was found in the caves at Qumran, you know, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Lots of scrolls in there that sort of confirm and verify uh, the the changes, the, these minute changes that may have happened over the years, what we're finding is really the Bible that we have now is almost identical to the Bible that they would have had in the time of the, the, the Qumran scrolls. And so that's, um, that you just should take great confidence in that, that the Bible that you have is, is very accurate. So, um, anyway, uh, the, the, the pieces that we have, it's, it's very difficult for these things to live a long time, survive a long time. So we're lucky, uh, blessed um, to, to have any of them. And often some of the pieces, it's kind of difficult to know if you don't already have sort of a Bible laid out where they go. And so the chapters that begin what we call First Kings, Second Kings, very possibly could have been the last chapters of the book of Samuel. Don't really know for sure, but um, how we separate them now, that's fine. Remember, the titles have, have changed over the time. The titles are not part of the inspired content. Um, the pericope headings, the book chapter verse, those things were all added by people later. And so those parts are not part of the uh, inspired content. And so we really just need to look at it for, it doesn't really matter how it was divided up or what was what. Was what. But let's explain long explanation of why and when we're talking about the book of Samuel, we're reading from Kings and now we're reading from Chronicles. So when you look at the book of Kings, what you see is the history that follows uh, beginning with Solomon and all of the, the kings of Judah and Israel and all the wars and everything, civil wars that go on and, and that kind of thing. Book of Chronicles chronicles a lot of the same information. That's why it's called the book of Chronicles. It has a lot of the same information and um, maybe it's just me, but it seems most of the time it's a little bit drier in the book of Chronicles because it really is just sort of chronicling everything, whereas Kings is sort of the continuation of the story. And um, But there's a lot, sometimes verbatim, uh, copies. And you'll even see um, in uh, one or both of these, you know, everything that this king did is written down in the annals of, you know, the kings or the, I forget what the actual name of the book is. So there may have even been some sort of third book that was, uh, was a civic book, was not a religious text. It was a civic book that sort of kept up with the history of all these kings that uh, I guess has been lost to antiquity. But um, so lots of things were written down during this time, but these survive for their religious value. These survive for their faith value. So we're looking now at First Chronicles 28. So we have rehashed some of the David story and Chronicles, and uh, we've read actually from Chronicles before, back to when we talk about the Second um, Samuel, cha Samuel chapter 6 with the ark coming into Jerusalem. We went and looked at the Chronicles version of that to get just a little different information than is in the Samuel version. And so now we're doing a similar thing here in First Chronicles 28. So we looked at First King chapter 2, and that was sort of David's last words to Solomon. This is sort of another version of David's last words to Solomon. So is this a question where Hey, the Bible's in conflict. This book says he said one thing. This book says he says another. No, not at all. First of all, you'll see both of these speeches are wildly similar. Uh, secondly, not everything is always written down in a story. I mean, you couldn't do that. It would take you as long to tell the story as it did for the events to actually play out. If we wrote down everything that happened between uh, Samuel and Saul and David, it would take you know 80 years to read the book because that's you'd be covering every single thing that everything that happened. 
So you pick and choose the things that you want to communicate in the story. And that's why we look at the storytelling of these things, because we ask, why did the author pick these things? Or why did the Holy Spirit pick these particular things to tell us at this particular moment? Why is the story in this order, especially if it appears that things may be out of chronological order? What are the things that are going on here? And so the aim of the writings of Chronicles is different than the aims of the writing of the book of Kings or the, or the book of Samuel. And so what we have here is we have a little longer speech, could have even be things at two different times, but there are some things that I want to look at in this speech that I want to leave us with that I think it makes a good note to go out on in this lesson. So let's take a look at First Chronicles chapter 28. David assembled all the leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, the leaders of the tribes, the leaders of the divisions in the king's service, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of all the property and cattle of the king and his sons, along with the court officials, the fighting men, and all the best soldiers. Then King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. It was in my heart to build a house as a resting place for the ark of the Lord's covenant and as a footstool for our God. I had made preparations to build, but God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you're a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me out of all my father's family to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader. And from the house of Judah, my father's family, and from my father's sons, he was pleased to make me king over all Israel. And out of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the Lord's kingdom over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who is to build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he perseveres in keeping my commands and my ordinances as he is doing today. So now in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and follow all the commands of the Lord your God so that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance to your descendants forever. As for you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intention of every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple and its buildings, treasuries, upstairs rooms, inner rooms, and a room for the mercy seat. The plans contained everything he had in mind for the courts of the Lord's house, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of God's house, and the treasuries for what is dedicated. Also included were plans for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, all the work of service in the Lord's house, all the articles of service of the Lord's house, the weight of gold for all the articles of every kind of service, the weight of all the silver articles for every kind of service, the weight of the gold lampstands and their gold lamps, including the weight of each lampstand and its lamps, the weight of each silver lampstand and its lamps, according to the service of each lampstand, the weight of gold for each table for the rows of the bread of the presence and the silver for the silver tables, the pure gold for the forks, sprinkling basins and pitchers, the weight of each gold dish, the weight of each silver bowl, the weight of refined gold for the altar of incense, 
and the plans for the chariot of the gold cherubim that spread out their wings and cover the ark of the Lord's covenant. David concluded, by the Lord's hand on me, he enabled me to understand everything in writing, all the details of the plan. Then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. Here are the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of God's house. Every willing person of any skill will be at your disposal for the work, and the leaders and all the people are at your every command. So at first, it almost looks like, uh, at first, it's kind of funny because it's, <laughs> David says, well, God told me I couldn't build the house of so Solomon. Building the house will be left up to you. And now here's every exact specification of how you're going to build this house down to the weight of the gold that you're going to use on the lampstands. It's like saying, uh, you know, I was going to build us a house, but I think, son, you should build a house for our family. Here's all the light switch plates I want you to use. And uh, here's the exact measurements of the doors and the, all the windows and the number of shingles. You know, it seems it's kind of like when your dad uh, helps you helps you with your um, Pinewood Derby car and Cub Scouts, you know, and you're eight years old. And you don't even know how to use a, a hand drill, much less a saw or anything like that. Or, you know, and so um, dad does a lot of helping and is very disappointed when your car doesn't win. Uh, so it seems like something like that is kind of going on. But then we see that David has said, you know, the Lord has given me these plans. That's why they're so specific. It's just like back in Exodus 31, 33, somewhere around there, where uh, God gives the plans to Bezalel and Aholiab through Moses to build the tabernacle, the specifications for the tabernacle. God says, you want to build me a house? Great. You'll build it, but you're going to build it according to my plan. And so what David is telling his son Solomon is very important. And this is the thing that we need to take with us out of this series and uh, take with us back out into the world. David, the king of Israel, is telling his son Solomon, the plan has come from the Lord, but the work is up to you. The specifics have come from God. God has left no detail unnamed. Everything that you need to know is here in this plan. It's all right here for you to consult. But it means nothing if you don't do the work. So Solomon, go do the work. And don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't, be, don't act rashly. Because the Lord God, my God, David says, the God that I love, the God that I know, will be with you. What's the first thing that David says to Solomon in all this? Know God. So something that we've talked about before, maybe not in this series, but in previous series, that real theology for a Christian should not be knowing about God. It should be knowing God, not knowing about him, but knowing him. Because our, our, our main aim here is to be loved by God and to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. And how can we do that if we don't if we don't study, if we don't chase after God, if we don't pursue him. And so David to Solomon, the first words that he says is, I want you to know this God. I want you to know him. I want you to know him like I knew him. I want you to have a life in relationship with him 
like the life that I had in relationship with him. I want you to turn to him when things are good. I want you to turn to him when things are bad. I want you to turn to him and give him the praise and glory when you have done things that are righteous. And I want you to turn to him in repentance and humility when you've done things that are evil. I want you to know this God and never leave him because he'll never leave you. And so wrapped up in this building of the temple is a beautiful metaphor, this idea that God has given us some specific things, but they mean nothing unless they are carried out by us. They are still holy and good. If no human ever lived, God's law would be holy and good. It's not about the worth of God's law, but God's law, God's desires, God's wishes would not be acted out because he puts them in our hands to do that. Uh, God could have easily freed the Israelites himself. God could have sent the plagues himself. God could have uh, killed Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and let his people go himself. But he put all of it in the hands of a man, Moses, who didn't even, didn't even want to do it. God could have uh, done many things. God could have saved humanity without coming down in the person of Jesus. But he wants to have relationship with us. And not just a relationship that is solely us worshiping him as God. Definitely wants that. That's a big thing. We need to have holy reverence for sure. But when Paul talks, we've read Ephesians a couple of times in this lesson series. When Paul talks in Ephesians, he doesn't just talk about us as subjects in a holy kingdom. He talks about us as being adopted into God's family which means even more at that time, in the time of Paul, than it does to us today. At the, t at the time that, that, that Paul writes these words, to be a citizen in a kingdom is to have certain rights. Paul would know that as a Roman citizen himself. But to be born into the royal family means you have all kinds of privileges on top of the rights. Think about how Moses grew up as a adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, possibly the um, Egyptian Pharaoh Hatshepsut. When she drew him out of the water and raised Moses as her own child, think of everything that he had access to living essentially as Egyptian royalty. Everything that he left when he saw how his people were being mistreated and also because he committed murder. And he left and he became uh, a shepherd. But God didn't say, well, I'm, I'm through with Moses, the murderer. Instead, he, he captured him. And he said, you belong to me. I'm calling you, Moses. I've chosen you to go and speak to Pharaoh. And eventually, um, eventually Moses accepted. God takes his great desires and he puts them in our hands. And uh, in, in no, no greater responsibility is there than is in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew in chapter 28. In the book of Matthew, Jesus says a lot of things to his disciples. So the, the first words of the gospel are in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, where Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This, these are the first words of the gospel in all the synoptic gospels. And so our gospel needs to begin there. When we're telling the good news to other people, 
there's two things that they need to know. Number one, repentance is good news. Number one, that there is, there is something coming that can undo all the evil that's been done to them and all the evil that they've done to other people. That's why repentance is good news. We've learned that through the story in Genesis. And the story of the wandering, the story of the book of Numbers, is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the reign of God is near, that God himself is close. And so the good news is there's, there's a way out of the sinful world besides eternal death, and it's because God himself has come near. God himself is close. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the kind of thing we see on a street preacher's sandwich board as he yells at people through a megaphone. But it needs to be the kind of life that we live, the message that we share with other people. Hey, you can escape these things that are killing you and killing the people that you love. And you can escape them because the God who created the universe wants to adopt you. That's what that means. That's what repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what it means. It means change your heart and life because the God of all creation loves you and wants to adopt you. Matthew 4, 17, those are the first words of the gospel. Repent for the reign of God is near. Matthew 4, 19 are the first words from Jesus to his disciples. And he says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So any of you that have been in college probably took a mandatory speech class. And in speech class, they tell you to tell people what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them, right? So that's how you do your introduction and the body of your speech and then your concluding remarks. You tell them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told them. And Jesus does the same kind of thing with his disciples. In Matthew 4, 19, he tells them, here's what we're going to do. You follow me and I will change you. I will make you into someone who fishes for other people. You, you, you stay with me. You go where I go. You see the things that I see. You see the things that I do, the signs that I perform. You hear the words that I speak. You hear the stories of these other people that are out there in the world. You see God's goodness at work. You spend life with me. When you do that, you will be changed. I will change you. And what will I change you into? I will change you into someone like me who goes out and seeks other people so that they can be saved. So that's Matthew 4.19. Jesus says, here's the plan, guys. Follow me. I'll make you fishers for people. Then you see him doing that. Right away, you go into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five through uh, chapters five through seven. Uh, then you get into uh, parables and healing stories and all kinds of things, running in with the Pharisees. And then you have the passion story. Jesus is arrested and beaten and crucified. He's buried in a tomb. On the third day, the tomb is empty. Jesus appears resurrected to many. And as he is ascending into the sky, Matthew chapter 28, he leaves them with a great commission. This is his concluding remarks. He's telling them what he told them. Okay, I did it. Now you do it. That's the paraphrase version. He says, hey, all authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, the great reconciler, has not only reconciled men to each other by the giving of forgiveness, by the tearing down of the wall between Jew and Gentile. But Jesus has done the remarkable work of reconciling heaven with earth, 
earth, rebellious earth, enemies of God, earth, selfish, survivalist humans, evil earth. God, uh, Jesus, through his blood on the cross, reconciled those two things, heaven and earth. And he says, guess what? I've got authority over both of them. They're reconciled. They belong to me. And because of that, what you, what you need to do as you're going out into the world, disciple. There's only one imperative in the Great Commission, and that's the word disciple. In your translation, it probably says make disciples. Uh, that's because we don't typically use the word disciple as a verb. And when it just appears in print, it's hard to know, is this a verb? Is this a, a noun? And so for clarity, we usually have the word make, make disciples. But it's only one word in the Greek, and it's the word disciple as a verb. It's the only imperative. Go is not an imperative in the Great Commission. It is in English, and it usually appears that way in English. But in the Greek, it's actually as you're going, as you go. It's a, it's a modifier. It's a participle. The going is assumed. So you can call that an imperative if you like. But Jesus assumes you're going to go. In fact, don't all of us go? A lot of us aren't doing a lot of going right now. But even those of us that are staying at home, uh, you're seeing the people that are delivering your food. You know, my mother's been spending a lot of time at home. That hasn't stopped her from being completely gracious to the people that have been delivering the groceries at her house and uh, delivering pizza or whatever, those kinds of things. Uh, the, the garbage men that are picking up the garbage every week. She's uh, still finding ways to, to go, even though she's not going a lot of places. Our whole life, we're going. We're uh, going online. We're uh, going out to eat. We're going lots of places. So Jesus is saying, look, you're going to go. You might go across the street. You might go to the mailbox. You might go to Spain. You might go to China. Wherever you go, as you're going, disciple. Disciple people. Make disciples. And then he tells them how to do that, right? He tells them to, you're going to uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to teach them to observe everything that I've taught you. Not teach them everything that I've taught you, but teach them to observe everything that I've taught you. Teach them to obey it. Show them how to be transformed. We've talked in several lessons uh, in previous series that only God can provide re revelation and only God can provide transformation. But the bridge between revelation and transformation is obedience. That's the work that's put in our hands. That's up to us. God provides the revelation, but we cannot get to the transformation unless there is obedience. That's why Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. If you obey, if you follow, if you come with me, if you obey, I'm giving you a revelation now. If you obey it, you experience the transformation. And the disciples did, and they experienced that transformation. Um, as I believe Thomas went as far as India. We believe Paul may have gone as far as Spain. That's most of the known world. And those are just the first 11 guys, first 12 guys, right? So, uh, now Christianity has gone all over the world. Where are you going? Where are you going to go this week? And how will you make disciples this week? How will you do it? How? Um, yes, it's a difficult thing to to baptize somebody through the uh, eight, you know bank teller window or uh, through the plexiglass at the pharmacist or whatever, right? Okay, but there's this idea of teach them to observe everything that I've taught you. How can you do that? How can you teach people to observe that? You can do it in small ways, but at some point, you've got to sit down with people and show them God's word. You've got to sit down and read through the text with them. This is where a lot of us 
get scared. I don't know enough. I don't have all this Bible background like you do, Paul. Well, I didn't have it. I wasn't born with it. You know, I got it all from a lot of it, just from free stuff that's out there. Also, you know, I'm a nerd. I kind of like to read some of these things. Some people don't like to do that. Guess what? You don't need to have all this special knowledge. All you need is the Bible. The Bible will teach. When I do discovery Bible study with other people, I don't do all this teaching. That's why I have to get it out in these podcasts or teaching Sunday school. Because when I sit down to do discovery Bible study, we read and I learn too, because the Bible study is also for me. I'm not done learning. I'm not done changing. I'm not done repenting. I'm not done growing. I'm not done maturing. I need people to disciple me too. I still need to grow as a disciple. I need to continue to follow Jesus. A lot of us have a church membership mentality that once you're baptized and you're in a church, you've made it. And we don't consciously think of it as like a country club or something like that, but it ends up kind of being that way. Oh, here's the people that are in and here's the people that are out. And we find, you know, little convenient ways to, 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 to keep sort of hammering this idea home. When Jesus never said, come to where I am, what he said is, follow me, follow me. That's what he says over and over again in the gospel of John. That's what I love about the gospel of John. Jesus's first words in the gospel of John essentially are, well, follow me, come and see. And his last words in the gospel of John are to um, Peter, John chapter 21. And he says, follow me. So the Great Commission gives us this great work. As you're going, make disciples, build relationships, get people to sit down with you and read the word together. And when we're afraid, it's the third part, the third uh, modifying phrase in the Great Commission. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going anywhere. So much like what's happening here in 1 Chronicles 28. Right? David says to Solomon, hey, here's the plan. Go do the work and don't be afraid because God's with you. And he's never going to leave you. But you got to obey him. You got to do the work. And the Great Commission is the same for us. We've talked a lot about discipleship in these lessons. In our mind, discipleship might look like a complicated Bible study or a Bible class. All you got to do is sit down and read with somebody and ask, what does this say about God? What does this say about people? How am I going to obey it this week? And who can I share it with? If you can do that, you can disciple somebody. And I promise you, the relationship that you build through doing discovery Bible study with somebody will be unlike any relationship that you've, that you've ever had. The, the, the intimacy and the strength of that relationship will be second only to your own family. And if you were to do these discovery Bible studies in your own family, imagine the bond your family would have by studying the Bible together in this way. There is nothing preventing us from doing this. Uh, just before I got on here, one of the reasons I was still kind of late getting things together is I was uh, online with uh, a writer's group, some fellow writers that we get together about once a month online and just share stories and catch up. And one of the new members of the group is from the United Kingdom. One is from Florida. A couple are from the West Coast. One's living in D.C. I'm here in Tennessee. Us, a couple in Canada. But we're all able to be together in one room because of technology. There is literally almost no place that we can't go because of technology now. 
There is no obstacle in reaching someone and getting to them. We really have no excuse. We can go everywhere in, in an instant. All of the biblical knowledge is all out there. All the information is out there. Maps and study. When people have complicated questions, you, you can access quickly and in many cases freely the the several answers that have been uh, derived over the last centuries to that very question. So many so many people ask questions that have been asked before and answers are out there able to find. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. Everything has been given to us to be able to sit down and read the Bible with somebody else. Everything is there. All the plans are there. All the details are there. All the data is there. And really all we need is scripture. That's what we, that's all we really need. We, we can pull it up on our phone. Many of us have paper Bibles. Everything has been given to us. It's all been put in our hands. But it means nothing. It means nothing unless we do the work. So out of love, I'll beg you the way David begs Solomon, the way Jesus begs the disciples, please allow me to beg you, please do the work. Help me do the work. Let me help you do the work. And so as we end this series about a man after God's own heart, I got to ask, how can we be people after God's own heart? How can I be a man after God's own heart? How can you be a man or a woman after God's own heart? Just like David says to Solomon, we must know God. We must be in the scripture ourselves. We must commit to obeying what we read. We can't be afraid because God's with us and we must do the work. So as we end this series, I'll leave you with this. Be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, our God, my God, your God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Godspeed. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.